Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, and I am not joined by the silent assassin Matt Costa or science advisor Matt Moniz. My guest co-host for tonight, I, I say guest, but I don't know why, because you're part of the Spooky crew, it's our own content director, Christopher Balzano. Good evening, Chris. How are you tonight? Good evening. I also don't know why you call me co-host, because I'm pretty much just standing in the shadow of Tim and hoping to get something in uh Get something intelligent and, and and running your steps. So. Oh, I don't I don't think you have to worry about that. And uh, we we've got a great uh, show for you planned. Uh, even though technically right now I'm not in the spooky studio, I'm actually at a Legend Trips event at the Fearing Tavern in Wareham for Haunted History Night 2012. And uh, I'm sure that I'm having a great time. I'm sure that we're having a lot of stuff going on. And I'm sure that we're having some uh, phenomenal pizza. But uh, <laughs> in the pre-recording here, I'm hungry. So. Let's not talk any more of this pizza. You are a thought form. You are a thought form. And I am. not only that, not only that we, right now we are traveling in time. It's great. It's a time awesome. slip. It's a time slip back to Tuesday night. Body, we got it. <laughs> and I, I got to say. That's, that's the worst Doc Brown impersonation ever. <laughs> I, I thought you were actually going for Bog from Voyagers, but whatever. Uh, so. <laughs> So let's uh, let's let's talk about, of course, the, the huge news of today, and that was, of course, that uh, the, the mega earthquake that rocked New England. That's crazy. I mean, tell me that's not another sign of the apocalypse, right? And I guarantee you, as we're talking right now, the debates are going on. Romney's winning. Apocalypse now. Actually, uh, I'm looking at Facebook here, and everybody's pretty much saying Obama won. So uh, we'll 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 see where that goes. Uh, but the, the earthquake was pretty uh, pretty interesting. My son and I were sitting on the couch. Uh, we were actually watching uh, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, and all of a sudden the couch was shaking. And my son turns to me and goes, Dad, something's shaking the couch. And me, immediately thinking paranormal, <laughs> like, I don't know what it could be. Let me try to debunk this as best I can. And uh, I, I looked into every possibility, uh, and finally I settled on, well, the, the oil burner probably clicked on, and, and that's probably what's doing it. But uh, it never occurred to me that it could have been an earthquake, but that's exactly what we felt. So pretty cool stuff. I mean, it's pretty cool when you're feeling it and it's not like a 7.1. So. I mean, is it is that um, – I mean, obviously it's not a common thing. But when was the last time there there was an earthquake in, in that, that at least registered that high in that part of the, the country? I don't know about that high, but I think we had one uh, about a year ago that we could feel. So there are – I mean, there are some from time to time. We are in a fault line, so it does happen. But it's just uh, thankfully it's never anything too too bad. And of course, all the f- within seconds, all the pictures were all up on Facebook of like lawn chairs knocked over. You know, we will rebuild. You know, trash cans knocked over. You know, the great great earthquake, great New England earthquake of 2012. So that was a lot of fun. All right. Well, like I said, we have a great show planned for you tonight. We're going to be talking with Nick Redfern. He is uh, an author, a lecturer, a journalist, and he he's basically a go-to guy for. Information about all things strange. Uh, Nick's been doing this for a long time. He's one of the most recognizable people in the field, and, uh, and not just because he's written dozens of books, but because he's he's just a sought-after speaker because he's not afraid to go outside the box. And we're going to do that uh, a little bit later on with Nick. And then uh, also we're going to be joined later on by Sue Soares, who is uh, the publicist for the Rhode Island Comic Con, 
which is being put on November 3rd and 4th by our friend Steve Perry. Uh, of course, we've talked about the South Coast Toy and Comic Show in the past and the South Coast Paranormal and Psychic Fair, but uh, I guess South Coast was uh, a little too limiting for Steve because now he's ready to put on a show for an entire state, and that's the Rhode Island Comic Con. So many awesome guests planned for this event, and uh, the tickets are real cheap too, so stay tuned so you can find out more about that. Uh, Chris, I've got to ask you, before we start our discussion with Nick, Nick Redfern, Dozens of books written by him. Uh, what, what's your favorite? What's your favorite topic that Nick's covered over the years? Um, let's put it this way: my the book that I enjoyed of his the most was the um, was the Men in Black book, uh, the Real Men in Black. Um, only in that there were a lot of things. As you know, I, as you know, I like to challenge things. I like to kind of have my mind going. I like to have to kind of like wait a minute. I don't agree with this. I don't agree with this. Um, and there was a lot that he presented in that book, and I think intentionally um, that that sparked a lot of discussion uh, between my friends and I, but also between my brain and itself. And so I kind of, at least in terms of liking like which book I enjoyed reading the most, it would be probably that one because it really made me kind of uh, get aggravated at times. And so um, you know, and and I, I sometimes can't wrap my head around the conspiracy theory ones because um, I just think it's a it's a whole. And, and he, you know, I'm interested to hear what he has to say about it because. You know, once you start kind of uh, looking, um, it seems everything is against you, um, or that everything is kind of one way or another against you. So I, I, it's really hard for me to connect to those ones as much. So I'm interested to hear about what he's got to say about this Men in Black. I know it's it's one of his older books, but uh, but uh, I'm dying to ask him. And I actually have some uh, questions that my students uh, have written up for him that we're going to read on air. So see what he uh, he actually has to uh, to say about them. So I think it'll be the first time remedial. Uh, 13-year-old math students will have the uh, the ear of Nick Redfern. Well, I, I think we should make it a, a regular segment on the show. What do remedial math students think of the paranormal? But, uh, all right, well, let's get right into it with our guest. Nick Redfern works full-time as an author, lecturer, journalist. And he writes about a wide range of unsolved mysteries, including Bigfoot, UFOs, the Loch Ness Monster, alien encounters, and government conspiracies. He writes for UFO Magazine, Fate, and 40 in Times. His previous books include Keep Out, the Real Men in Black, The NASA Conspiracies, Contactees, and Memoirs of a Monster Hunter. An extremely popular media guest, Nick has appeared on numerous television shows, including VH1's Legend Hunters, BBC's Out of This World, History Channel's Ancient Aliens and Monster Quest, and Sci-Fi Channel's Proof Positive. All right, well, thank you for joining us, Nick. We've been trying to get you on the show for a long time, but I, I guess you know, you're a busy guy putting out all these books. Well, I guess it keeps me out of trouble and uh, pays the bills. And <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, joking aside, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a passion. It's what I enjoy doing. So I always try and, you know, try and bring something new to the table. And i got something new, you know. I just crank it out when and whenever I can, I guess. Now, uh, when you're working on a book, I mean, it, it seems like, uh, you know, you, you go, you jump pretty easily from topic to topic with each title. Uh, do you find that when you're working on one particular book, are you completely immersed in that subject, or are you always um, kind of looking into a variety of different um, genres and a variety of different um, uh, types of cases? That's a good question. I mean, you know, I'm not, I don't sort of cover across the board paranormal. I don't really do much on ghosts. That doesn't sort of interest me that much as, you know, sort of cryptozoology, the search for unknown animals, and UFOs and conspiracies are the sort of main areas I dig into. But what I tend to do, I, you know, I've never felt pigeonholed where I've got to be, oh, Nick's a UFO researcher or he's a monster hunter. You know, I, I, I don't see anything wrong with sort of crossing into different areas for different books. And so, but what I usually do is, you know, I have sort of several 
kind of criteria. You know, you want to keep the books fresh so it's not just, you know, one book after another on Bigfoot or whatever. But you want to bring something new to the table. You don't want the reader just to think, well, hang on, you know, we've read all this in somebody else's book. So I always try and focus on a project that I think is going to be interesting. But it, when I get into that project, you know, whatever the research and writing time is, I, I tend to focus on that. But then I'll have something else in mind perhaps afterwards. So then I'll just sort of swing into that one straight after. But it's not like I'm kind of, you know, juggling three keyboards or whatever, you know, to uh, <laughs> to do one in, you know, three hours on one in the morning and three hours in the, on another in the afternoon. That would be a bit too much, I think. <laughs> I would think well, so, they, yeah. Well, that, that they, begs the question, though, is if you're writing, you know, about, mysterious creatures about ufo sightings about strange places and, and, and conspiracies it begs the question then do you think that those are all intertwined um i'm not so much about the conspiracies but i mean there, there are certain parallels and overtones and crossovers if you like between a lot of so-called 40 and phenomena paranormal phenomena now you know the fact is that the ufo community for the most part doesn't like to hear of stories where you know say for example somebody claims to have seen Bigfoot and there have been sort of weird lights flitting around in the woods. Equally, cryptozoologists don't like to admit the fact that, you know, there have been a lot of UFO sightings, for example, at Loch Ness. You know, they, they kind of like to keep them separate. But I take more of a kind of view that people like John Keel had, the idea that there was possibly, you know, maybe even one point of origin and that all these phenomena somehow interconnected in ways we don't necessarily understand, you know, in the same way that with Keel's work, when he was researching the Mothman sightings at Point Pleasant in the 60s, you know, Mothman's this weird, sort of glowing-eyed, winged, gargoyle-type creature, yet the men in black were turning up, and there was UFO encounters and all sorts of stuff, so I tend to think, even though we don't have the answers, there is a connection between a lot of these things, but, you know, belief is like a, a strong thing, where a lot of it goes under the radar, because Many people in their respected communities, you know, they just won't touch the, the crossover case. It's like a 10-foot pole or whatever. Um, maybe we can ask the question a different way that we kind of presented at the beginning. Because um, I'm sure uh, a portion of your book is probably um, stories that you've kind of knew, uh, famous stories that you kind of just followed up on. Other ones are ones that, um, that, that maybe perhaps you, you know, went out looking for yourself, you fished and said, you know, does anyone have these kind of stories? But I'm trying to, a large portion of what you are writing about are stories that people have communicated to you, like they've called you, they've emailed you, they've wanted to know things about you. And so I guess my question is, what um, what are the stories that people are coming to you with? Are they coming more to the UFO, uh, cryptozoology kind, or are they coming to the conspiracy theories? What are people um, getting in contact with you that's kind of on their mind? Well, it's kind of reflected in the sort of things I write about, where, for example, uh, or the theories that I write about, in the sense that, you know, somebody who's had sort of a straightforward, you know, UFO encounter might go to somebody who views UFOs from a nuts and bolts perspective. I tend to get a lot of sort of the more esoteric and, and weirder fringe-type stories, you know, where... Say, like somebody's seen a UFO over all places, Loch Ness, or somebody's had a man in black encounter where instead of being like a government person, it was one of these more creepy, you know, more occult-based MIB that people talk about. So, in other words, I think the people who sort of contact me sort of gravitate more to me because 
I've written something that sort of resonates with their own experience. You know, I, I actually, I, I know for a fact from reading the emails I get, you know, that as a, I get far less of, you know, the sort of nuts and bolts UFO type stuff and far more of the sort of interdimensional window areas, crossover stuff with other phenomena, that kind of thing. So, which makes sense, I think, you know, because I think people probably would contact an author who they feel is more on receptive to what it is they're talking about, you know. Well, also so you're, seeing, you're seeing as the fringe guy among the fringe. Yeah, I mean, it's, when I say that I'm sort of more on the fringe, I mean, the entire paranormal <laughs> world is right. arguably a fringe topic in the first place. So, yeah, that's the fringe of the fringe, perhaps. But, I mean, I don't mind that because, you know, I, I don't, like I said, I don't feel, number one, any need to be pigeonholed into one area. And secondly, and more importantly, you know, the witnesses are the most important people in this subject. Without the witnesses, we've got nothing to go on. And if they're the ones who are saying, you know, they saw Bigfoot in the woods and as they tried to photograph it, their camera suddenly jammed or it vanished in the blink of an eye. Well, you know, it's like to sort of censor those stories because they don't fit in with the idea that Bigfoot's just like a large lumbering ape. Well, then you become almost like the government with UFOs. You're censoring yourself, except, you know... So, you know, I, 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 for me, I can't avoid the high strangeness aspect when it's coming from a lot of independent witnesses, you know, even if it doesn't fit comfortably in some people's belief systems. Well, my, my answer to that is, well, well, so what, you know? Right, and it must be a real temptation, though, when, when people contact you to want to classify it fairly quickly because, I mean, so many people are approaching you for different things that mm -hmm. someone might have something that... Um, they're kind of approaching you thinking that it might be a ghost, for example. Um, and yet, yeah. as soon as you're hearing it, you, you're like, okay, I, I know about ghosts, you know, I, I've, I've written about that, but really, that sounds a lot more like this, and you're kind of, you know, do you, do you feel that you have a hard time kind of just being open-minded because you you do get into grooves of, of certain kinds of things that you're um, covering? No, no, I wouldn't say I do, because I do try and remain open-minded, because again, you know, I'm just sort of chronicling the stories. I'm not the person who's sort of you know, had this profound experience. So the onus is on me to sort of listen and listen carefully to what the witnesses have to say. But what I, what I do try and do is often, you know, I give advice on experiences and cases that I've looked into previously. I mean, a classic example is where somebody, um, I mean, there, there are a number of cases on record where people have had visits from these sort of really weird, creepy men in black type characters, you know, not, not the sort of government agents, you know, so Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones, but these weirder, skinny, white-faced ones that seem more like, you know, sort of modern-day vampires almost. And there are a number of those cases where right after the experiences, literally in the hours and days afterwards, the people have had ex have experienced quite violent poltergeist activity in the house, or they've been regular users of Ouija boards. That, those are actually two prevalent characteristics of classic men in black encounters. Now, I've had some people who say, you know, they saw this messing with a Ouija board or whatever, and they saw this sort of shadowy thing in the corner of the room wearing like an, an old star fedora hat. And I've point, you know, and they said, well, he's, could that be like a spirit or something? And I've, and I've said, well, you know, it could be, but on the other hand, you know, the fedora hat and the Ouija boards are actually classic aspects of men in black encounters, which are more tied to UFOs, and then that opens another door. So, you know, I try not to sort of force ideas on people because then you kind of if you're not careful you can color and influence their their story or their theories or whatever 
So I try and share data and, you know, point them in different directions, say, you know, look into this because this might be more related despite what you initially think. But I think it is, it's dangerous for us to get in that path of, you know, putting belief systems into the mind of the witness. Well, one of the things that I, I found fascinating about your your previous uh, work about about the the real Men in Black incidents mm-hmm. is uh, you mentioned kind of these John Keel Men in Black type reports where they are uh, you know they they do seem to be not of this world they do seem to be some sort of inhuman creature and that actually got my mind working in the idea that maybe you know these UFOs aren't space aliens but they're some sort of you know, figure from folklore and mythology over the years, and that these men in black kind of fit into that same role. And, and I just wonder if, uh, you know, you, obviously you've collected so many reports of them over the years that, uh, you know, ha- has our perception of them changed now so much that the more common reports these days are the, the government agent type sightings uh, and not so much those John Keel type sightings anymore? Well, you know, it's interesting. The ones that tend to get profiled more in the media are the, you know, the government agent types. But, I mean, I can tell you that I've got reports sort of right up to the present day. I get probably, I'm actually working on another book on the Men in Black now because I've got so many reports. Um, and I still get a lot today of these really, really weird types um, going up to the present day and they're still driving the old black cars and they've still got the fedoras and the skinny black ties and you know, 60s-style suits and whatever. Um, and there's a lot of paranormal overtones to them. But I think what happens is that the weirder the experience, the less inclined, very often at least, the witnesses to talk about it unless they realize there's someone who's on a par with them in terms of at least believing and accepting the theory like me. You know, otherwise they tend to clam up, I think, when it gets into really weird categories. But when you talk about, you know, whether the UFO phenomenon isn't extraterrestrial. I, I actually think it probably isn't, or at least not in the way we understand it, like simplistic nuts and bolts spacecraft coming from one star system to another just to go home after scaring a few farmers or whatever, you know. Um, I think it's more likely to be like Keel's window areas where there's something that coexists with us. And I actually think that the possibility, what, that whatever this phenomenon is, it can kind of influence the human mind. So it manifests in a form and fashion that's sort of acceptable and believable to the people of that era because you can draw a lot of parallels between today's alien abductions with fairy encounters back in the Middle Ages in England and Western Europe. Now, not the sort of typical fairy imagery that was actually only created a couple of centuries ago of little female characters with wings, but before that they were sort of sort of three-foot-tall, four-foot-tall, kind of ominous figures that would surface at night out of old caves and, you know, hollowed out areas and things like that. But if you look at those stories, you know, you'd have people, they would go into the woods and they'd get disoriented and they'd see these fairy lights, which you could class as UFOs. Then they get taken to the fairy kingdom where they mate with the fairy queen and they see these um, half-human, half-fairies, which, you know, you could class as today's alien hybrids. Then they come back to the real world and they find that, you know, they think just two hours has gone by and six or seven has gone by, which is like today's missing time. And a lot of stories in fairy lore about the fairies breaking into people's homes and stealing babies and replacing them with what, what's called a, a changeling, uh, like a crudely carved wooden effigy. 
So again, you have this fascination with reproduction and children and babies that, you know, the greys are supposed to have today. So I actually do wonder if this phenomenon is sort of playing with the human mind and masquerading as one thing or another to suit its, to suit its actions and the perception of the people. And maybe we've never actually seen whatever this intelligence is in its real form because it's constantly changing to sort of deceive us according to, you know, the era and the beliefs and the folklore, etc. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. You were you were saying filters, and we were talking about that before because mm-hmm. I had it from the. I kind of had very similar experiences to that in that um, when I started writing about puck wedgies, mm-hmm. people started to contact me, and, and one of the, the number one thing they were saying is, "I have this experience. It felt very much like a um, like a, a UFO abduction, like a classic abduction scenario." Mm-hmm. But after reading what you've written about puck wedgies, I kind of feel like which are puck wedgies are exactly what you're explaining in terms yeah. of the fairies. Um, you know, it's totally that. And I said, mm-hmm. well, you know, like, you know, let's not put that behind because, you know, I don't want to influence, over-influence what you're, what you're saying. But, you know, so it does make sense that um, these things seem to have very similar themes. And, and of course, it, it raises the question, um, Nick, that, that, you know, are we inventing all of these things and there's just some kind of, like, archetype? And so we just keep playing that out or are these things, you know, possibly physical? Like, are we, are we fooling ourselves? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I think it could be a couple of things. I mean, one of the areas I'm sort of heavily interested in is that of tulpas and thought forms, the idea that the human mind can create some imagery in its mind to such a powerful extent that you can kind of externalize it. And it takes on a, like a quasi-independent existence and almost like a self-awareness. And according to sort of the ancient theories, tulpas, if you, you know, if you project this imagery outward, and it actually sustains some sort of, you know, sort of fragmentary existence. Well, the theory is that tulpas exist by feeding on high states of human emotion. So, in other words, to provoke that high state of emotion, they'd have to be seen. So, you know, people often wonder, why do people see UFOs? Why are people always seeing Bigfoot running across the road? Well, maybe that's when it's feeding time and they have to be seen to get a person in a high state of emotion and then they bleed them dry. Because there are a lot of reports where, again, come back to the men in black, people have had these visitations and afterwards they felt like physically drained, you know, like or like a, a diabetic about to crash, you know, and they've got to have a quick fix meal or a bar of chocolate or whatever. And, you know, and some of them have said they felt like the energy was being drained from them and afterwards the MIB vanished and, you know, people have said, why do the MIB scare people so much? Well, maybe it's not to shut them up. Maybe it's, you know, we're a food source and, you know, and these are, they're almost like a psychic vampire, if you like. Yeah, I do think, uh, you, you know, I, I've been saying this for the last, I don't know, year on Spooky South Coast, and I, I catch a lot of crap from my co-host Matt Moniz for saying that I, I really do think that UFOs and, and aliens are kind of just our modern boogeymen. I mean, uh, as our as our technology advances, so does our idea of what a boogeyman would be. And um, I actually gave a lecture last week to a bunch of people uh, at a library on ghosts, and I started talking about thought forms and tulpas, and and everybody's kind of looking at me funny. And then right after that, I'm like, and I'd like to sell you a ninety nine dollar ticket to come and investigate for ghosts with me and Jeff Belanger. And you know, it's it's, it's one of those things though that if 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 you deviate from the commonly accepted yeah. Um, models, it's like it's you become like Chris said, the fringe of the fringe. Well, I mean that is true, but again, I mean I th- I actually do believe that the Tulpa phenomenon is a genuine one. I don't pretend at all to know how it works or why it works, but you know I think there is a great deal to be said for the idea that 
you know, imagery, you know, when enough people believe in something, it can give semi-independent existence to this imagery, um, you know, to the point where it may become sort of semi-self-aware. And, you know, it's like with the men in black, people have said that they they seem like self-aware, but they do the same things over and over again. Right. And, you know, almost as if, almost like they're a computer program that isn't self-aware, but it runs like on a perfect model every time, you know. Um, and maybe that's what they are, you know, kind of like in the Matrix movies. There's a glitch, you know, and then suddenly these black-suited agents turn up to try and fix it. But, you know, they're not necessarily fully self-aware things. They're just inserted into the program, you know. Maybe we're all living in one big program. Well, I'd, li I'd like to come back to the idea of Men in Black a little bit later on because uh, mm -hmm. I know Chris has some questions from his students sure. uh, about Men in Black, so we'll we'll do a little segment on that mm -hmm. uh, coming up later in the discussion. But I want to get to your latest book, The World's Weirdest Places. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can tell by your accent that you are a native of Texas. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's that strong uh, Lone Star accent I've got. <laughs> and uh, you, you, you write about in the book, uh, you said that you know you don't really research uh, ghostly activity all that much, but uh, it seems like Jefferson, Texas seems like a place uh, worthy, worthy of your efforts. Well, yeah, I mean, for the most part, I don't get involved in ghost hunting, not for any particular reason beyond the fact that, you know, I primarily... My, my main interest is cryptozoology, UFOs, and conspiracies. And, and there's also always a, already, you know, a lot of good people doing great ghost research, you know, so why, you know, wade in on that territory, so to speak. But when I was doing the research for the book, you know, and the publisher said, well, can you cover stuff across the board? Then, you know, I've got to include some. And, of course, Jefferson, I mean, I live just outside Dallas, like about a 20-minute drive from downtown Dallas. And, um, you know, the, because... I had to do somewhere that was haunted. Well, luckily, Jefferson is only like just under two hours east of Dallas. Um, and it's a perfect place because it's a very old town. It's one of the oldest towns in Texas. It goes back to the Civil War era, uh, actually before that. And the downtown, the old downtown area of Dallas, uh, excuse me, of Jefferson, hasn't really changed uh, since that era. The, the streets still have cobbled streets, and you can go on sort of, um, you know, horse and cart rides around town and um, a lot of the uh, old hotels there, the Jefferson Hotel um, and, and the, the Excelsior Hotel and a number of others have got ghostly stories attached to them. What's interesting is that many of the old hotels and streets even and houses that still exist, they actually have stories attached to them of sort of Civil War Confederate-wearing, uniform-wearing soldiers having been seen wandering around, you know, as if the old Civil War soldiers, you know, were still living on, if you like, but in ghostly form. And there's, there's also a very, well, amusing story of Steven Spielberg supposedly staying at the Excelsior Hotel in 1974 and a ghostly uh, child waking him up in the morning asking him what he wanted for breakfast. <laughs> um, now, whether that's true, of course, you know, or just a, a legend, we don't know, but, uh, but uh, Spielberg's never denied it. But um, you can actually go on, there's a guided ghost tour in Jefferson every Friday night, which is a really good tour. It's like two hours, and the lady who does it, you know, she'll take you around all the hot spots. And um, so that was sort of an ideal place for me to dig into, not just because it was geographically nearby, but, but because it had such a density of ghostly reports. 
I think the other interesting thing about Jefferson is that from the way you described it, it's a town that kind of now strives on tourism. Um, and people yes, it to, does, yes. And yeah. yet you said one of, I can't remember which one it was, uh, one of the hotels absolutely does not like to advertise the fact that it has ghosts. So it's kind of this weird contradiction thing that they're making their money off people coming in, and yet one big trend is staying at a haunted hotel, and they, and they don't like to share that. Is that, is that the, uh, the same one with Spielberg? Or is that yes, I know you is. talked yes, about that, two main yes. ones? Yeah, the Excelsior and the the Jefferson one. You know, the, right. the Jefferson one, I mean, they, they sort of embrace it. Um, but some of the other, you know, there are other ones in town that don't. But, I mean, a lot of people also go there as well because the old downtown area is sort of, you know, a cool place to go for a day out and see, you know, a bit of early American history. And it's sort of filled with old antique shops and bric-a-brac places and restaurants and whatever. So in that sense as well, you know, people like to go there for the historic reasons, not just the ghostly angle. But it is interesting that some of the places there actually do downplay it, you know, rather than sort of amp up the atmosphere, if you like. Well, and it, you also have a, a very interesting case in there because, you know, a lot of people, and this was probably, you know, one of the chapters that I enjoyed the most of the new one is that um, you, you talk about the New York subway system. Oh, yeah. Um, uh-huh. and, and just when I'm getting into, all right, uh, you know, I love a good urban legend. I want to hear about the, 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 the alligators in the sewers and things <laughs> like that. You, you pop out with, uh, once again, another Puck Wedgie story. Um, can you can you share that one with us? Yeah, well, well, sure. I mean, you know, the this actually sort of relates to sort of partly to do with Central Park and partly with the New York subway system. But I mean, it's interesting that you know tunnels, caves, caverns, whether they're old ones or new ones, they all some somehow and for some reason seem to provoke intriguing and weird stories. You know, strange things living underground. I mean, there are legends from the London Underground of sort of like devolved humans living in some of the lower levels, you know, and they live on the hobos, etc. And, um, you know, it's a great story. It'd be wonderful if it's true, but, you know, it's never been proved. But the, the New York subway system I talk about in the book actually deals with a, a witness, a guy I interviewed about, I think about three or four years ago now, maybe a little bit more. And um, he worked at a hotel um, actually in New York, just off Central Park at the time. And he said he'd seen this sort of weird little... The only way I can describe it, like I did in the book, is like Littlefoot, you know, rather than Bigfoot. It, it wasn't, you know, somebody's escaped little rhesus monkey. He was sure of that. It was like a, like a hairy little man-like creature that he said, actually claimed to have seen on two occasions, which kind of suggests like a paranormal angle with, you know, the same person saw it twice, that it was sort of manifesting for him and no one else. But he described it as like a small, you know, um, sort of hairy type of sprite type creature almost. And um, he saw it once on the fringes of the subway system and then sort of bounding through Central Park. And as I said, it was sort of ape or monkey-like, but human-like as well. And he got the feeling that, you know, he could see it and nobody else could, Uh, which again, you know, is sort of people often get that in sort of paranormal experiences where things suddenly go quiet and they're in this sort of, Unreality and the world's going on around them, but they're almost in like a fishbowl situation. That's how the the guy kind of felt. And um, but I mean, it's interesting because the subway system has you know been urban legends for for alligators, and I also talk about like a go- again a ghostly Civil War type character seen in the subway. So you know maybe there's something when we start digging underground. You know, one theory is we let loose sort of 
energies and who knows what, you know, that are latent in the earth and sort of open portals or whatever. Well, it's funny because uh, when I was reading the book and uh, I was thumbing through the chapters, I, I'm looking at the book and it says, you know, the world, wheels, world's weirdest places, and there's a chapter on the New York City subway, and I'm like, yep, I don't have to read any further. I've been in the New York City subway, and it's one of the world's weirdest places. <laughs> yeah, without, without sprites and alligators and ghosts. <laughs> Just the people that are on there. I mean, I took the subway at 7 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday, <laughs> and let me tell you, you could, you could write a whole book about that alone. That might be the next one. <laughs> <laughs> so now, when when you were compiling this list of the world's weirdest places for the book, uh, I mean, how did you determine what made the cut and what didn't? I mean, what was the yeah. the weirdness factor that it had to have in order to, to make it into the book? Well, for the most part, I mean, it had to be somewhere that was like a clearly delineated area, but where there was a wide range of different stuff going on. I mean, even with Jefferson, you know, I spoke about the fact that, or wrote about the fact that, you know, there's been Bigfoot sightings in the area as well. So, in other words, I sort of, as I talk about in, in the introduction, you know, I kind of took the inspiration from things like John Keel's Mothman Prophecies, where he wrote about Point Pleasant, West Virginia, where you had the Mothman, you had Men in Black, you had occult activity, um, then the collapse of this bridge that killed all these people who drowned in the river. So, in other words... It was finding places where there were sort of four or five different paranormal or, you know, supernatural activity going on. Everything from strange creatures, UFOs, ghosts, occult activity, paranormal stuff, uh, portals, you know, interdimensional things, time travel, you name it. Kind of like where somebody or something had said, right, your area, we're going to target it, you know, for the next 50 years. It's just going to be you know, saturated with strange stuff. So so that was basically the criteria. Anywhere that we had sort of four or five, you know, weird stuff going on constantly where it was clear that it was the area itself that was strange rather right, than just right. one or two random things going on there. So how come there are so many weird places like this uh, in the world? I mean, not, not, not just the occasional, you know, weird location, yeah. but in, entire geographic regions with high strangeness. Well, I actually think Keel was onto the right path, you know, decades ago, way back in the 60s, when he started talking about these so-called window areas, you know, sort of portals or gateways to other realms. You know, today, for example, things like quantum physics are allowing for the existence of sort of multi-dimensions. You know, in, in simplistic terms, probably the best way to describe it is, you know, you're in your car driving along, you've got the radio on, and you don't like the song that's playing, so you, you flip to another, then another, then another. And all these stations are going along on at the same time, but you can only be tuned into one at any given moment. And it's kind of like that. The idea that it's, quantum physics allows for the existence of multi-dimensions, and I, I guess, you know, if you knew how to sort of negotiate them, you could flip from one to the other. That possibly there are places on the planet that have sort of these portals at semi, you know, semi-periodic moments, they open and they close, and perhaps when they open, they kind of let these things through from whatever realm, and then they go back and, you know, they close, or possibly these creatures, or whatever they are, can negotiate them, you know, via technology and science we don't understand, or even natural means, you know, maybe that's why Bigfoot vanishes sometimes, and that's why we don't catch the creature, or we don't have much evidence of its living habitats, or it's what it's eaten, because, you know, it's only here, you know, on a, on a random basis, if you like. And, of course, when I say things like that, people are like, 
oh, Nick's on his weird cryptozoological paranormal rant. But, I mean, it's true. You know, there are a lot of weird reports. And if if we took the view that these things are chance random encounters because these things are sort of visiting our reality rather than permanently here, that might explain why so many of these things seem physical and tangible, yet at the same time ethereal and intangible and so transparent in terms of leaving no evidence behind because they're literally gone. And it would be interesting for what that says to the onlooker too because like you were saying before, sometimes uh, in these experiences people are like the only one who can who can witness it, and even the people around them don't seem to notice it. So it's, it seems as if there are, there are not only is it, it people who can walk through those windows, but also people who can perceive things that have walked through those windows. Or maybe you've stepped out of, maybe you've, mm-hmm. you're into their world for a little bit, or at least you're mm-hmm. maybe in a, in a mid-area, you know? Yeah, there's a lot of stories like that. And actually, um, you know, Jenny Randall's coined this the Oz Factor, uh, Jenny Randall is an English UFO researcher and author. The idea that, you know, you can be doing something and suddenly everything feels weird. You know, the birds go quiet. The, you know, the traffic stops. The sound of the traffic stops. You feel weird and you feel there's something watching you. You either see a UFO or a strange creature. Or people get disoriented, you know, that they, they're in the woods. And, they, you know, they get lost in, a, in an area of wood and there's like 200 feet square, which they travel through every day on the way to work, you know, if they're walking through the woods or whatever. And back in fairy eras, this was known as being pisky-led, P-I-S-K-Y, which is where people would become enchanted by goblins and they would lose track of where they're going. And, you know, they'd be wandering around for hours seeing the same path they're trying to get to, but they can never reach it until they get out of this mode. And I've actually got stories like that quite close to where I grew up in a large area of forest called Central England. I got a story once from a guy who was a, a cemetery in this particular area of forest at Cannock Chase. And this one guy told me the story about how he was walking by the cemetery along this one pathway, got like 100 yards past it, and was lost. And he knew his path, he knew where the path should be, but he, it wasn't that he couldn't just find it. He couldn't understand why he couldn't find it. You know, it was almost like he'd been drugged or something. And everything was totally quiet. And then suddenly, he suddenly heard the birds starting chattering and kids and the parents walking the dog. And he was back in reality. So I think there is something to this that, you know, there are other realms. And perhaps these entities know how to negotiate them. But for us, for the most part, it's like a weird random thing where, you know, you're in the woods and suddenly everything just feels weird for a second or two. You know, a lot of people have experienced that kind of thing. And then it then it kind of snaps off and you're back to normal. You're like, well, what was that, you know? Well, then we got We have to ask you before we uh, move on from the world's weirdest places, what, what is the weirdest place in the world, in your opinion? Um, well, you know, I would have to say, for me at least, top of the list, because I've been there, and you know, it would be Loch Ness. And the reason why I say that, in Loch Ness in Scotland, because everybody associates Loch Ness with the Loch Ness Monster. You know, of course, you're going to do that. A lot of people don't know how much other weirdness has been at Loch Ness. For example, in the Second World War, a, a British Royal Air Force uh, military plane crashed in the loch, and all the crew managed to get out apart from one. And there have been sightings of, sort of this ghostly airman sort of coming out the water dressed in like a Second World War era type military outfit who then suddenly just vanishes in the blink of an eye. Um, in 1974, a, a Loch Ness researcher, a Loch Ness monster researcher named Ted Holliday, 
um, who actually came to believe the Loch Ness Monster had paranormal origins rather than flesh and blood origins. He had a man in black encounter on the shores of the loch, and then exactly a year later uh, was felled with an almost fatal heart attack at the, exactly the same place. Um, the famous occultist Alistair Crowley had a house on the shores of Loch Ness called Beleskin House, uh, where he tried to conjure up demons from the loch. And that house was later owned by Jimmy Page, the guitarist from Led Zeppelin. And even in the 70s, he said it had this ominous atmosphere. And uh, there have been big cat, big black cat reports in the hills around the loch, UFO sightings over it. Um, so, and the, the weirdest thing of all, a lot of people don't realize, is that, you know, most people think of the loch Ness monster as this long-necked, humped creature. But there have been reports of, other people have said they've seen what looks like a giant frog-type animal in the loch. So, you know, you've got a, a wide range of everything from demonic, uh, occult stuff, um, UFOs, men in black, uh, big cats, and at least two different types of lake monster scenes. So, for me, that kind of puts it all into, you know, one of these definitively weird characteristics where... You know, you even have to wonder, you know, is the Loch Ness Monster really flesh and blood or is it something stranger? Well, the, the more I think about uh, Loch Ness, you know, the, uh, the the story seems to be, it, it always seemed to me as being a, a legitimate flesh and blood creature uh, when I was growing up, you know, reading all the stories about it and everything. But now, the the fact that the sightings are so few and far between, I'm, I'm starting to think yeah. it's more of that, that trans-dimensional type being. Mm. Well, well and also that they're... Yeah. I'm sorry, Nick, go ahead. I was just going to say it's interesting that Jim Mars, um, in, what, in his book Psy Spies, he talked about how the U.S. government's remote viewing team actually remote viewed Loch Ness and said that when they actually supposedly latched onto the imagery of the Loch Ness monster and said it kind of just vanished as if it was like some sort of ghostly thing. And what's interesting is that prior to you know the name of the Loch Ness monster being created, Back in the 17 and 1800s, um, the people who lived in the area believed back then that there was something weird in the in the uh, lock, and they called it a kelpie, K-E-L-P-I-E. A kelpie is basically a term which means water horse, and it was a Scottish term to describe a paranormal creature that would drag people down in the water to steal their souls. And, you know, it's interesting that they were talking about the kelpie, one of these kelpies, living in Loch Ness. And so, in other words, even back then they viewed the idea that there was something in the lock, but they viewed it as something that wasn't a physical animal as such. All right, well, the, the new book is The Weird, World's Weirdest Places. I promise I'll get it right <laughs> if I say it in a <laughs> I don't worry, I do that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, uh, it's available everywhere books are sold, and it's, uh, it's definitely, not only is it a great bunch of stories, but, I mean, if you've got the time and you've got the money, it makes an excellent travel guide uh, to be able to go around and check out some of these places and, and to kind of follow in, in Nick's footsteps. And, uh, and, and I'm sure that, uh, you know, this is probably the first of many books under this title because you're going to just start hearing about more and more weird places as time goes on. <laughs> But yeah, the world's weirder places. Maybe that would be the next one. <laughs> I think the weirdest well, even thing would be more having money to visit all of these places. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, now, Chris, I know that you had uh, said that some of your students were reading Nick's book, uh, The Real Men in Black, and that uh, you, you, they had some questions for Nick. So, I mean, this is uh, probably the best 
chance to have him uh, answer their questions directly. Well, exactly, and they actually got excited when I said, "Oh no, I'm gonna, I'm talking to Nick tonight." They're like, "Oh, write our questions down, write our questions down," because your book has been, you know, I've got to be, especially now that I'm teaching math, the weirdest math teacher because I have a collection of hundreds of paranormal books in my library at school, um, and so we have, you know, oh, cool. free reading time, things like that. And for, you know, since this book has been published. Um, it's been one of the ones that's always off my shelf on free reading. Someone's always reading it. So just so you know, you're you're, you're big with the middle school set. So you and oh, Justin that's... Bieber are right there, neck and neck. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, so, that's the first I've ever heard that. I'll say that. So, <laughs> so and, and, and some of these questions have been cleaned up. I, unfortunately, this can't be a regular segment, you know, questions from the kids. But here are some of the kids that – here are some of the things, having read your book, some 12- and 13-year-old students uh, had okay. about about your book. And, and the first one is, are there girls in black? Yeah, well, yeah, there are women in black, and uh, yes. we should be very thankful for that as well. So. <laughs> 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 but, yeah, I, mean, I actually have a chapter in the, the book on women in black. I mean, to give you a classic example, although they're not as widely reported as the men in black, I sometimes wonder if they have been sort of seen as much, but people haven't associated them with the men in black because, you know, the term men in black is so sort of iconic, if you like, um, that people don't necessarily realize they've seen a female equivalent. They just thought they had a weird experience where somebody had asked them about a UFO encounter. But I'll give you a classic example. I've been on a number of expeditions to Puerto Rico looking for the Chupacabra, and in 2005, I went with a film crew from Canada called Red Star Films, and we spent about, I think about a week or 10 days there, just sort of running around the island, and um, interviewed a rancher who had, whose animals had been attacked by what was reported to be the Chupacabra, and he said the next day, two characters knocked on his front door, bear in mind he lived in, you know, pretty much the rainforest of Puerto Rico, the middle of nowhere, and he said they was a man and a woman, both dressed totally in black, he was in like a black suit and tie, she was like in a black uh, business type outfit um, both pale as uh, like a bottle of milk um, unemotionless uh, totally unemotionless um, no, no smiling nothing like that at all and reeled off all these questions about you know what did you see what do you think it was don't talk about it and then they just turned and left and you know this was like the Puerto Rican summer like hundred and something heat and you know they were there in business suits in the in the rainforest you know so that's like one example of a, of a woman in black, but there aren't certainly as many on file. But what's interesting is they do, they are almost like a literal female equivalent down to the skin color, you know, the lack of emotion, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you know, why there should be any less, you know, if there are men in black, why shouldn't there be women in black? But there seems to be more men in black, but, you know, Maybe, as I said, it may be because people aren't necessarily thinking they've seen a woman in black because they're not aware of the term, you know, so they kind of just write it off, you know. Well, possibly another thing could be is that the, these men in black um, come off with a level of authority that maybe mm -hmm. culturally they can't get across, at least until recently, with women. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I actually never thought about that theory, but... Um, you know, I mean, but what is interesting, you know, people who said they've seen the, the women in black, you know, do get this sort of creepy kind of intimidation feeling from them. Um, you know, so I guess, I mean, it's one of the, I'll be the first to admit, it's one of these areas that's actually quite underexplored. Um, but I think, you know, if we were to look into it more, I know John Keel got one or two stories from New York in the 60s and tried to follow up on them and did get a few leads here and there. 
But I think I don't think anybody's actually done like an in-depth project. But it would be a good one, you know, for somebody to do. You know, try and do a paper that would look into that, like a definitive paper on the the WIBs, if you like. <laughs> right, or, or even how how their how their kind of um, their physical appearance might have changed as what we see as authority figures, or what we see what we the people who we listen to. Which I guess kind of fits into the next question, um, which is, now this, per- this person phrased it, once again, keep in mind, they don't have big attention spans, so the fact that they didn't know there was a chapter on girls fits right in with this as well, is um, why did there seem to be more um, American men in black, um, and then kind of as, an, as I was kind of getting them to kind of say a little more about it, they went, well, why, why are there no stories about like Egyptian men in black or African men in black? Well, in, in, I mean, book, so. yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is that um, you know, the the, the, the <laughs> not that Egypt the, and Africa aren't the same place, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the major reports that we have are from sort of Britain, America, Australia, Canada, right. and the Western world. Um, you know, I mean, I, I talk about those reports. You know, I talk about Puerto Rico. I also talk about Mexico. But you know, sometimes in particularly in sort of the 40s, 50s, 60s, we just didn't really get as many reports because there weren't that many people collecting UFO stories, you know, in Argentina or, you know, wherever. Um, and also, you know, there's the fact that even if they were reported to UFO groups, well, in the pre-internet era, you know, we just didn't always hear, you know, that's whatever somebody published in a newsletter, say, in, I don't know, Chile or somewhere like that, in, you know, they've got a good circulation there. But if the story didn't get out, you know, into Flying Saucer Review or UFO magazine on the other side of the world, we wouldn't know about it and, and vice versa. You know, it's kind of like, um, I mean, give you a classic example, totally different subject, but a lot of American people are amazed when I tell them how few American TV shows are on in Britain. They're like, oh, we thought you watched all our TV shows. And, you know, they don't realize American Idol, X Factor, you know, none of those shows are on. What, what is on is like British equivalents, you know, uh, like the same with Law and Order or whatever, or the Y5O, you know, people watch British police shows. And it's, I think it's kind of that thing. You have cultural parallels and cultural differences, not for any mysterious reasons as to why, you know, this... MIB story might not turn up. It's just that, you know, often, you know, countries are kind of focused on their own stuff, you know, um, even in today's world. You know, it's what's important to you outside your window, you know, not what's going on on the other side of the world, as interesting as it might be, you know. And it, it, what I was explaining to them is that it might also be a case of um, whether you're worth their time, depending on the size of your of your um, of your megaphone because a lot of the stories of uh, mm-hmm. that you document in the book are cases of people who have some kind of connection to the media or at least have yeah. a, a network of people that are listening to them whereas if you're just kind of a lone person and you spot something you might be less likely because ain't no one listening to you anyway no that's actually a very good point because you know i mean a lot of the people i interviewed with the men in black book i mean what i tried to do was you know all first-hand interviews i just went back to even People like Jim Mosley, who's like 80 now or something, you know, he was a young kid in the early 50s when he was doing research into the Man in Black, and I interviewed people like Brad Steiger, um, because these were people who'd had MIB experiences and knew some of the early players in the subject. And, you know, so in other words, they were visible people. Um, but this new book I'm working on um, is basically people who've 
just members of the general public who are coming forward. And, you know, a lot of their stories, or most of them, if not all of them, have never, ever been seen before. But you're quite right that a lot of the people in prior years were people who had high visibility, and so we knew about their stories, you know, so we could trace them further and track them back and interview them, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, like I said the good thing is it's pulled in more people since. But um, I think, that you know, the visibility of the person does have a great deal of, you know, um, influence on the extent to which the story gets told or not. And the, the increased uh, sightings of them would, would probably be in direct correlation with the Internet and with the ability for anyone to get that megaphone pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, if you go back even probably 15 years or, you know, sort of mid-90s at least um, up to that point, you know, if you wanted to search somebody, you know, you had a Men in Black encounter or a Loch Ness encounter or whatever, you know, it's kind of like, where are you going to find out? You put your best bet, you know, what are you going to do? Go to your local library or pull out a book on the Loch Ness Monster and see who published it, then write to the publisher to have your letter forwarded on to the, the author, you know. That's how we used to have to do stuff. People, particularly people who were born into the Internet era, you know, they don't necessarily realize that where you just type in Google, you know, Loch Ness Monster plus researcher, you couldn't do that 20 years ago. So that's that's definitely had a massive influence, you know, where people will read your book, they'll go to your blog or whatever and, you know, just tell you the story in, They've sent it in an instant. You've got it in an instant. You know. Right. Not only that, but you can now, you know, hang around in a, in a, in a room and chat with people who, who uh, are on the other side of the world who are experiencing something who think the same way. And so there's a there's yeah. a sense of comfort in that with coming forward. Yeah. All right. Next one, because we totally touched on this earlier, and so now I'm able to bring this back around. I wish I'd been able to say it then, but I wanted it to be as part of the segment. Um, they asked, "Do uh, men in black kill people?" Or are they unhealthy for people? So this kind of dates back to that story you were um, you were talking about before about how you know um, mm-hmm. one year later on the exact same location the person was really mm-hmm. moved by that story and a few other stories like that. So it's kind of the, the, so like for me to present it is are mm-hmm. is there something nefarious about them that they're coming back and 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 attacking these people somehow, mm-hmm. or is the is the possible man men in black whatever they might be. Um, cancerous or, or unhealthy or, or, or actually just coming into contact with them uh, causes you, like you were saying, the, the physical things, stuff like that. In other words, are they directing it or is it just something about their physiology that might be doing it? Well, I think, you know, what a lot of people do report when it comes to the men in black is that, you know, it's very often, well, I won't say very often, I would say it's exclusively a very negative experience where the person feels deeply traumatized. Now, as I said, there have been examples, you know, where people have had occult activity and poltergeist activity in the house after the encounter. Um, But what you also get is people who've suffered quite ill health and psychological ill health after having these experiences. I mean, a classic example is arguably the person who almost single-handedly brought the Man in Black mystery to life. That was a man named Albert Bender who in the early 50s had a UFO group uh, called the International Flying Saucer Bureau, which worked out of Bridgeport, Connecticut. And Bender was the first person to talk about getting a visit from these three guys in black suits, and they do pretty much turn up in threes. It wasn't the very first one, but it was certainly the most high-profile of the very early ones. And Bender talked about how he would see these shadowy characters sort of hiding in the alleyways in the old town he lived in, and they'd have these sort of glowing eyes. Nothing like the movies. It was more like H.P. Lovecraft meets 
you know, the X-Files rather than the X-Files meets the X-Files. Right. Um, but in Bender's case, he talked about how he got very paranoid um, and he said he would, you know, he'd fall asleep on his bed or he actually would feel himself passing out and have to lie down and he'd go dizzy. He'd suddenly get this overwhelming smell of, like, brimstone in the bedroom, you know, which is sort of a classic paranormal overtones there. And these shadowy figures would manifest and tell him to keep his nose out of ufology, basically. And he began to suffer from pummeling headaches, um, rampant paranoia, um, ill health, and he just developed this sort of unending fear of cancer. And in the end, he just dropped the entire subject. And that's actually happened to a lot of people who've had MIB personal experiences where they felt, you know, almost like there's been some malignancy left in the house after they've left. You know, kind of like when people talk about somebody's broken into the house and rifled through the wardrobes or whatever, you know, they feel, you know, it makes them feel like the house is unclean or whatever. That's the same kind of thing people get with the men in black, as if something's lingered behind and it's sort of left an after effect of, negativity in the, in the house or whatever. A lot of people talk about that. Okay, and the last question, because you've kind of addressed some of the other ones. <clears throat> Why aren't they after you? <laughs> well, maybe that, Well, you know, it's funny you should you know, say that. I've never, <laughs> I've never actually had that sort of, you know, defining late knock, night knock on the front door or whatever from <laughs> three guys in black suits. But what did happen, and this, this is genuinely weird, is that when I was promoting the real Men in Black book, you know, doing radio interviews, I'm not exaggerating. When I say maybe 10 interviews out of 20 I did for the book, every time I would do a Man in Black interview as opposed to on one of the other books, we'd get no end of telephone interference. And it would often occur when we were talking about the telephone interference angle of the Men in Black mystery. You know, people <laughs> who've had MIB experiences or encounters or researched it, they start getting weird clicks and clangs and electronic screeches and all sorts on the phones. Um, and or strange voices coming on the line, things like that. And that happened a lot when I was actually being interviewed for the book. You know, as if somebody was just sort of putting the word out, hey, you know, we can mess with your mind if we want to, that kind of thing. Right, right. So I've had that happen, which is, you know, for me it's probably the, the with or without doubt, you know, the closest thing to that, but in saying that, you know, there are researchers, I mean, I mentioned in the book, like Marie Jones, Marie's a high-profile researcher and author today, she was happy to be interviewed for the book about her MIB experiences um, about 10, 15 years ago. Um, Brad Steiger told me about his, um, where colleagues and friends of his had been threatened and um, basically made sort of, you know, sort of vague, sinister intimations that they were going to visit him. Um, you know, so there's a lot of stories where people immersed in the UFO field have, have had that sort of defining visit as well. So uh, I'll get it. I'll probably put that in the next book. How do you what would my reaction be? Yeah, yeah. I mean, would, would you would you give it all up? Would or would you uh, would you continue uh, rolling the way you roll, or, or or do you think it would be so intimidating you would give in? Because it's just, it's going to happen. So you know, so you got to get you got to have the you got to have the answer well, for them ready. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I would hopefully, you know, have the presence of mind to have a camera handy and record all the information and then put it all in the next book. But what I would say is that many people who have the visitation from the men in black, it's almost like they've been hypnotized, you know, where they, they get a knock on the front door at 10 o'clock at night. And, you know, your first thought is it's either someone testing to see if there's anybody in and if there isn't, they're going to break in, or it's the police with bad news. Well, 
you know, at least you're going to put the chain on the door and look through the hole. Many people have said that they never thought to do that. They just opened the front door, and there's like three guys there in black 50s-type suits and hats saying, we'd like to talk to you about your flying saucer experience. And the person just lets them in, like at 10 o'clock at night or whatever. They sit down, and they get grilled and threatened, and then the MIB leave, and then the person's senses start to come back to normal. It's almost like they've been mind-controlled or hypnotized to reveal what the, per- the MIB want to hear, um, and then the threat goes ahead. But it's done in a fashion where the person is in a weird mindset where they don't retaliate. So, in other words, despite what we all might say we were doing the experience and how we might stop it and, you know, punch one of the MIB on the nose and knock him out and call the police, that never happens. It's like... You know, it's like you've been placed under semi-anesthetic or something, you know, about to go in the hospital room, you know, and your mind's not in a proper working order. That actually seems to be what does happen in these encounters. And I think that's why, you know, I can say now, if they came to me, you know, I'd grab one and pull him in the house or whatever and, you know, give him a good kick, <laughs> knock him out and call MUFON or whatever, you know, and tie him up to a chair and just wait for the local MUFON branch to arrive. But you may not ever get the chance to do that because people are really en- rendered into almost like a hypnotic state where the MIB are basically in control of the whole situation. And it's only like 15 minutes after they've gone, you know, when in simple terms, like the, the anesthetic's wearing off. Then people right, right. think, why on earth did I let them in and why did I let them go, you know? Well, someone tells me if an MIB ever shows up at your door, Nick, he just wants to have a copy of his book signed. Oh, well, I'll do that. That'll be all right. <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right, he is Nick Redfern. His new book is The World's Weirdest Places. Uh, be sure to check that out as well as his many other titles. And, and Nick, we really enjoyed having you here on the uh, on this taped edition of Spooky South Coast. Hopefully you can come back sometime, join us for a live show, because I know that our audience uh, would love to be able to jump into the chat room and, and call in with some questions for you. Yeah, that'll be great, guys. Thanks a lot. All right, thank you so much, Nick, for joining us, and, uh, and have a good Halloween season. You too. All right, thanks. All right, joining us on the line now is Sue Soares of the Rhode Island Comic Con. It's coming up November 3rd and 4th at the Rhode Island Convention Center in Providence. And, you know, normally, Sue, when I go to the Rhode Island Convention Center, it's for the beer festival. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm walking out of there in a, in a pretty, uh, let's say, pretty happy and pretty euphoric state uh, <laughs> after consuming mass quantities of beer. But I get a feeling I'll be walking out of there on just as much of a high after getting to see all the great guests that you have coming to the Rhode Island uh, Comic-Con here on November 3rd and 4th. Well, what's really great is the Beer Fest is right next door on the same day. On the so same day? Oh, my gosh. Day. Yep, the Beer Fest is running on Saturday, November 3rd. Wow. Oh, man, I'm going to be in my glory. It's in the exhibit hall right next to us, actually. Well, there's only the only downside to that now is I'm going to have to take my buddy Felix Silla and get him hammered. <laughs> I'm sure the Super Nazi would love that one. I, I'm pretty sure we can get him in one of his many costumes if we get him drunk enough. Absolutely. Well, uh, I mean, this is this is just a huge, huge show. It's like every day, if you go to the website, ricomicon.com, or if you go to the Facebook group for it, uh, it seems like every day there's, there's somebody new being added or, or something new that's going to be happening there. I mean, this is just kind of taking on a, a huge life of its own almost. It has. Um, it's been unbelievable. As a creator myself and being married to a creator, we heard about this show about a year ago. And, you know, we bought our table early on. And I've done some convention promotions before. So it was around May I um, approached 
uh, Steve Perry to work with the with the convention, and since then it's just it's blown my mind. Um, we are so excited about all of the guests that we have on board. Um, most recently, just last week, we had Walt Simonson, who is probably one of the biggest names next to Stanley in the comic book industry, and we couldn't be more excited. And what's even uh, more interesting is it's you've you've been able to take what's a, a great slate of guests, but still been able to kind of put some sort of theme to a lot of their appearances. And of course, one of those is a a huge Battlestar Galactica reunion. I mean, we're talking about stars of the original series here. We have nine of the original characters. Wow. Nine of them. It's just unbelievable. We just keep on adding more and more. Uh, with only three weeks to go, I don't know how much more we can add. Um, but yeah, it's been incredible. And I know that the, uh, Battlestar Galactica reunion is going to be one of the, the biggest hits of the weekend. And, and one thing that nobody has to worry about is, uh, you know, is, is any kind of safety issues at the Rhode Island Comic Con? Because if anything, you know, sketchy goes down, they're going to have a whole bunch of Power Rangers there to take care of things as well. Absolutely. And, you know, we're talking about Fuck Rogers here. You know, we've yep. got, Major captains, we've got everybody. We've got Chewbacca. We need some security. We have Chewbacca. That's true. And if anything, if you get into real trouble, then it'll just turn into Vader time. Is right. Big Van Vader's going to be there? Yeah, absolutely. We've got wrestlers. Uh, we've got Star Trek folks. Hey, we've got uh, John Delancey who played Q. All he has to do is snap his fingers and he'll disappear. There you go. And uh, one, one of the guests that I'm most excited about meeting is uh, is one of my favorite people growing up. I mean, I grew up listening to WBCN in Boston, and it, it had a real shape into who I became as a person. And uh, and the great, great Billy West is going to be there. Yes, I actually had the opportunity to meet Billy West when I was in college. He had come to do a, a talk on Ren and Stimpy. And I was on the college radio station at the time. And he did a few uh, promotional, little commercial spots for us, um, and I had the opportunity to meet him. So I'm very excited to be able to see him again. That I think is going to be another highlight of the show. Now, now my co-host here, Chris, he's in Florida, but uh, I don't know. I think he's uh, on Priceline right now trying to find a plane ticket to so come <laughs> up here and meet Nicholas Brendan. Oh, my goodness, yes, absolutely, from Buffy. Um, I'm sure all of the young ladies are going to want to go after Nicholas Brendan. And, and Chris as well, right, Chris? <laughs> well, yes. You mean the girls are going after me or they're going after Xander? They'll <laughs> um, go after Xander first, but, you know, he can only handle so many. So then they'll go after you, Chris. I'm with you. I get, I get a lot of that. You know, it's either it's either you know movie stars and TV stars or me. But I'm actually interested to see... Um, you know, Nicholas Brandon getting together with Bumblebee and maybe doing some classic Shakespeare. I think that would really work. So, I mean, I, I, I see. I always think that, that would be the exciting thing in this Comic Con is just getting you know these kind of things. It's just having people who are known for these universes coming together and talking and doing some completely silly thing like you know doing the uh, doing the when Harry met Sally conversation with you know Q and Chewbacca like that would rock. Oh, I know. Um, we have been to a number of different Star Trek conventions and. One of them that we went to for a long time was United FanCon in Springfield, Massachusetts. And they used to have a Saturday night cabaret where all of the guest stars would come on stage and do something. And um, we remember one particular time 
It was they came on stage and was reading from Dr. Seuss, Green Eggs and Ham. Oh wow! So it's really great to see the different um the different skills they have, the different talents they have, other than the ne- the necessary title that they're known for, the character that they're known for. Um, Robert Picardo is one of our guests. Plays the doctor on Voyager. He is a wonderful singer, and he's performed in um, theater. Very, very talented. Well, and and one of the uh, one of the guests that you're going to have too is uh, is Noah Hathaway. And I, I'm just wondering, you know, so many people must go up to him and, and just recite lines from the Neverending Story. And of course, he's he's going to be there as part of the big Battlestar Galactica uh, reunion. But I mean, he's he's a, a, somebody who is always forever going to be recognized as a Treyu. And I'm looking at some recent photos of him, and he looks like he hasn't aged a day. Probably hasn't. You know, he's never ending. Still- True. A lot of these folks had secret um, tricks to keeping their age. You know, it's really great to see them and out and about and meeting the fans. That's one of the greatest things that I love to see when I go to these shows. Well, I think that's kind of what keeps them young is being out there and uh, and and you know be able to meet the fans and, and meet and greet with them all the time. And uh, when I, I remember when I saw that uh, you know Richard Hatch was coming, I, I got excited, but that's because I thought it was the dude from Survivor. The guy who owes all kinds of money to the IRS, and I was, you know, thinking in my head, gee, what can I get this guy to do for ten bucks? That dude's from, isn't that guy from Rhode Island? From Rhode Island, so I'm sure he's going to be there anyway as a fan. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> I mean, I'm just looking. It's it, no matter what, where you go, what, no matter what you're interested in. I mean, there's something for you at the Rhode Island Comic Con. I mean, uh, our good friend Gremlina, who's a, a great friend of Spooky South Coast, she's going to be there. I'm hoping that I can grab Claudia Wells, steal the DeLorean, and actually travel back in time to 1985. But, you know, uh, uh, something tells me that I'll, I'll probably uh, get shot with a, a Star Wars phaser or a Star Trek phaser if I try to get into one of those cars. But Probably. <laughs> it's not some real-life weapon from um, some very <laughs> strong, competent police officer. And... Uh, yeah, it's gonna be a it's gonna be a great weekend, and it doesn't have to be for comic book fans. It doesn't have to be for Star Trek fans. It's gaming, it's animation, it's movies, TV. Everyone that every kind of geekdom that you can imagine will be at this show. And uh, I, I am. I'm kidding around about getting in those cars, but there are going to be a number of cars there. The General Lee's going to be there, the original Batmobile, and, of course, the DeLorean from Back to the Future 3. And it's so rare. Uh, I know that they take these uh, the, the DeLoreans around for charity events and, and to raise money for uh, Michael J. Fox's foundation, but it's so rare to get one of them up here because uh, there's there's never an event big enough for them to bring them up here. But here it is, the Rhode Island Comic Con. It's going to be a huge event. It's uh, it's November 3rd and 4th at the Rhode Island Convention Center. The website is ricomicon.com. People can buy tickets there. How much are the tickets? $25 a day or $35 for the weekend. Wow, you can't beat that. $35 to go hang out with all these great people for two days, and I'm sure there will be panel discussions, and, and, of course, all the artists are going to be there, all kinds of things. We have over 100 uh, artists on Artist Alley, uh, including Walt Simonson, Jamal Igo, um, Bob McLeod, it's going to be phenomenal, and um, we also have a series of after parties that are taking place that I want to mention. Sure. Uh, we're going to be having our primary after party at Dave & Buster's, which is in the same complex, if, you, if no one's familiar with the area. It's in the same building, and you don't even have to go outside. Um, and then we're having an after party, after party 
at Saints and Sinners Lounge, and that's going to be a steampunk gothic vampire party. Wow. And then on Sunday, we are having a rap party at Whiskey Republic, which if anyone is familiar with it, it's at one of the owners is actually in the Dropkick Murphys. Oh, wow, yeah. So, and I'm just looking at some of the people that are coming to this thing, and I'm thinking, you know, we need to grab Christian White, Jason Mayo, uh, Frankie Washington and his wife Crystal, Felix Silla, Gremlina, and we, we need to go on a little paranormal haunt uh, investigation while everybody's all together. Absolutely. We have a number of paranormal folks that are coming. Keith and Sandra Johnson will be there as well. It's going to be phenomenal. We have someone from um, Ghost Hunters International. Uh, just yeah, Sh- Shannon Sylvia, yeah. So, best part about Shannon Sylvia, aside from her connection with Ghost Hunters International, you got to try one of her cupcakes, and I'm sure she'll have them with her. They are phenomenal. Well, and that goes right down the line because the uh, the um, uh, the Agostinos are there too, and you know you haven't tasted uh, the sweet stuff unless you've tasted Arlene's sweet stuff. So that's what you guys, you, there should there should be a, a Rhode Island Comic Con bake sale with famous people making stuff because those guys, both of those people, rock when it comes to the baked goods. Oh, that would be awesome. Extra, extra little bonus there. And if you're coming from the beer festival, you know, you're looking for something good to eat. So there you go. So November 3rd and 4th, uh, Saturday from 10 to 7, Sunday from 10 to 5 at the Rhode Island Convention Center, 1 Sabin Street in Providence, Rhode Island. The website is ricomicon.com. Get your tickets. Only $35. For the two days, so you can't go wrong. And Sunday, of course, uh, Steve and I were talking about this a, a long time ago. Steve Perry, who's a, a good friend of the show, about when he was trying to put this all together. And the, the key here is Sunday is a Patriots bye week, so you're not going to even miss the game. <laughs> that was one of the first things that I said on our Facebook wall when I took over as publicist, is that it was a bye week. There you go. And, and so there's no reason not to go head out and, uh, and check out the Rhode Island Comic Con November 3rd and 4th. Rhode Island Convention Center, again, ricomicon.com is the website, and, uh, and Spooky South Coast will be in the house, so uh, stop by and say hi to us, and I promise, uh, you know, I, I won't get too liquored up before I come in. Awesome. Maybe I'll just wait and get liquored up afterwards, and then do Spooky South Coast right after that. That should be fun. There you go. <laughs> you, need to, you need to remain straight, because I'm, I'm, I'm now sending you with a few different missions of things you've got to get while you're there, Tim. Oh, well, that, that's fine, but I, I will say this. One of the greatest episodes of Spooky South Coast ever was when we had Dustin Parry on, and it was we had both come uh, right from the, the beer festival. You know, uh, the whole Spooky crew was half in the bag and, and so was Dustin and uh, we, you know, we hit the wall right in the middle of the show and it turned out to be one of our best discussions ever so see there's no reason why beer can't make everything better <laughs> alright Sue thank you so much for joining us good luck with everything and, uh, and we'll talk to you soon thank you alright have a great night you too bye bye uh, yeah that was great I mean yeah looking at this list I mean jeez you gotta go for both days because you're never going to see everybody. It's crazy. It's crazy. And it's and they they really have just been adding people like every day. I mean, there's people that are like, you know, some of the the stuff they're bringing them in for is one thing, but people are going to be all over them for another thing too. I mean, that Battlestar Galactica alone would be worth it just to, for for that much money just to see those people I know, together. That's like hours? that's like a quintessential. I mean, I don't know anyone that's our age that wasn't into Battlestar Galactic, even if they weren't into sci-fi. And and I would go, I'd pay $35 just to hang out with Claudia Wells and, and see the DeLorean. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's it really kind of runs the spectrum. And, and I'm, I'm wondering, like, as you go through these things, 
you you start to see uh, you know the same faces and stuff like that are appearing. And how about the fact that Lee Merriweather's like in the seventh row of guests? I know. You know what I'm saying? Like you've got Lee Merriweather and Mark Gooder uh, there, and, and and they are way down on the list. And it's like, hello, these these are these are foundation kind of people, you know? And it's I, like, I think part of the reason is I think they've they've kind of been added uh, at certain times. I mean, some of these people were were gracious enough to jump on right at the beginning. And uh, actually, uh, an interesting thing that people don't know about Mark Goddard is that he's actually uh, he lives in Massachusetts. Does and, he? Uh, and I believe he's a teacher in the Middleborough school system. Well, I've, I've I've had occasion to deal with the Middleborough school system, so that doesn't surprise me. We, we've uh, we've tried tried to get him on the show a few times, but he doesn't uh, you know he doesn't get back to us. So he's you know I, I don't blame him. He, he's no, busy I wouldn't guy. get back to you if if you called me up. I would definitely wouldn't call you back. So right, and and so, you don't you don't call me back now. So I'm gonna I'm genuinely gonna create a list of missions that I have for you at this Comic-Con. And I understand you've got a lot to do. I don't know if you're going for both days, but I want to see how many of the things on this list you can do for me because they're, they're, and, I'll, and I'll rank them in terms of their um, um, their importance to me. Oh. And this... Is it, are you going to give me the list now or is it something I should expect in the coming weeks? You know, I, I now have, we have a few weeks. I've got everything in front of me. Now what I see what this, what this con actually is, I'm like, wait... <laughs> Wait a minute here. Imagine if I could have Noah Hathaway and and Xander, you know, singing to me like "Happy Birthday." Oh, you're gonna, like you're gonna make me go up there and ask him the weird stuff? Like, well, of course. you want me to you want me to, you want me to be the hot blonde Spanish reporter chick at the Super Bowl? That's what you want me to be? Well, okay. So at the very least, you 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 have to get some signatures for me. But I mean, you can't just get a, a regular signature. Like, you have to get my book. Signed by one of them. Like, hi, can you sign this book that someone wrote? Because it's their book and they just want it of you. Yeah, Nicholas Brendan, you were the inspiration for Haunted Objects, Stories of Ghosts on Your Shelf. Can you I sign mean, it? Where would I be if it hadn't been for Buffy? You know what I'm saying? And, and I'm genuinely saying that. Like, you know, I mean, where would I be if it, if, it, if it hadn't been for Bill West? You know, like, I mean, how much of an inspiration, especially for people in this area, was he? So it, it's kind of like, you know, to have them sign my book, it would be incredible. I'm just... And Christmas is coming up, and if I can't get the, the double shot of Jake the Snake Roberts and Hacksaw Jim Duggan signing something for my pop for his birthday, please, I won't even, I, it could be, it could be a, um, you know, it could be a Schiffer book that he signed, it would now be worth something, so. I'm just wondering how much I have to give the Fink to have him record my voicemail message. <laughs> Imagine Howard Finkel recording your voicemail message. You've reached the voicemail of Tim Weisberg. This call is for one fall with no time limit. You know, or, or or to have the soup Nazi. I would love to have, and I've actually done. You know, she was saying about the the readings. I've actually had, um, I've done the soup Nazi. I've done green eggs and ham in the soup Nazi voice for for people that were feeling down in the dumps. Very nice. Larry Thomas, also a good friend of the show. Is he really? Oh yeah, was yeah. He, he, was he on last year? Uh, we we tried getting him on, but uh, he didn't make it in time. But we we had some good conversations leading up to it. He's a great great guy, and uh, you know, he's somebody who uh, it's always it's always fun when you have somebody who might be. Uh, well known for one role. It's always fun when they can have fun with that. You know, right. they, they they don't have to they don't have to be like you know uh, Janie Lane refusing to ever sing Cherry Pie ever again. You know, he knows he knows what brought him to the dance, and and he's not afraid to uh, embrace that. <laughs> That's what it is with a lot of these guys. Uh, and there's so many people here that you know they're known for one thing, but they've done so much, and that's that's what I think. Uh, 
that's what I think people are going to be surprised when they when they get up there and they talk to people. They're going to find out more about uh, who these people are instead of just the one character they might be known for, the couple of characters they might be known for, and finding out who they are as people. And uh, do do we tell Mitzi Capture and Erica Alaniac like you know what we used to do when we watched Baywatch? <laughs> Dude, I never watched Baywatch. I, I never have either. I was I never just have watched. I was, and. and and I'm, you know, I'm not saying that I'm beyond any of that because I'm not, but I, I have never, I've never watched. Because um, I used to, I know, I'll tell, I'm not afraid, I'll tell the whole audience what I used to do when I watched Baywatch. I, I tried to figure out how to swim by watching it, you know. Exactly. I, I exactly. figured they would know all the, all the strokes. You know, and, and, and stroke away we did, so. <laughs> I think this is going on radio, so be careful. <laughs> There's still that possibility. Well, you see, too, I'm used to podcasting now, so I'm like, ah, I can just say anything I want to say. So it's not like it's, it's, you know, if, if it, if it goes over, uh, uh, you know, actual radio radio, then, then I'll, I'll clean it up. But. And of course, you're talking about Spooky Crossroads, which airs Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. on Spooky TV on SpookySouthCoast.com. Yes, I am, and, and as well as uh, some other stuff that I'm working on that I'm just kind of recording a whole bunch of stuff, and, and you know, most of it's just me swearing because I can swear. Right, well, it's... Which is really soothing. It's okay to swear, but also, you know, you also need to have some restraint because, you know, sometimes it's... Is the great, great, great Jeff Charles, one of the biggest influences in, in my life and my radio career, once told me, you know, it's sometimes it's more powerful to imply that you said it than to actually say it and to have it be theater of the mind. Well, you know, I, I, I know this isn't gonna, turning into an advertisement for uh, Spooky Crossroads, but I think we initially thought we were going to swear a lot more. I know, and we, you know, we do put in the requisite one or two per episode, just you know, to right. make sure that people know that it's uncensored. But we it's don't. Like, we're it, not it's gratuitous. Like, it's like every show on USA now having to throw in like two SHs during right. just because so they, they, they can. Yeah, right. and yeah, we're edgy because we say it. By the way, you should see the design that I've made for the Spooky Alternative uh, iTunes station. It's pretty groovy. Nice. You know, I, we should probably update the Spooky South Coast one. I, I don't even know how to get in there and, and make changes to it. But uh, so, so you're saying that there's going to be an alternative uh, podcast feed coming out for people? Yeah, I mean, I know that people um, like Spooky South Coast. You like their Spooky South Coast the way it is. Um, but we have just so many kind of uh, feelers out there, whether it's listeners um, that are wanting to get involved in things and, and kind of becoming part of the crew, um, or whether it's just kind of other things that you and I um, and, and other people want to do. Um, and, you know, Spooky South Coast is Spooky South Coast. It's got not, it's not, it doesn't have a formula, but it has kind of a groove. Um, and sometimes that groove is not having a groove. You know, so like it's kind of not, you know, formulaic, but there's this other programming. It's we want people who like Spooky South Coast to continue to get Spooky South Coast, subscribe to the Spooky South Coast feed, get those shows. But we have these kind of characters that are now part of the spooky, uh, universe, if you will, the spooky verse. And they, um, they want to create stuff. You know, I want to create stuff. There are things that I'm working on. And so, um, we need a channel for that. So, I'm, uh, we're creating Spooky Alternative, which is going to be a separate feed. Um, hoping that we can get, uh, Tiffany to allow us to put some of her shows, um, up on this, uh, iTunes channel, as well as, uh, Spooky Crossroads, which is airing on Wednesday nights. Uh, at 10 o'clock, uh, as well as some other things that I have in the works. I'm not sure how much you want me to get into some of the shows that we've got planned, but uh, we also have a few people um, outside of our verse who are wanting to warp in uh, and, and do some things. And so, have, have we, have we signed any deals? Have there been contracts signed? And <laughs> it's funny, but uh, not officially. Not officially. Uh, Katie is, is, has said that she is very interested. 
um, and, and, and wants to be part of what we're doing. But I had to make sure that we were actually going to be able to do it. Uh, that tech wise, we were going to do it, but I think I've got it, I've got it worked out what we're going to be able to do. So, um, I definitely know that we have at least two people that I've approached that have shown interest. Um, and I'm, 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 you know, if we can get Dave, we need Dave. We need Dave to do show. Oh, um, we need, we need, we need low, the low battery Dave show. Yes. Yes. Running on low battery. <laughs> and, uh, and I really want Derek Gunn to have a show. Um, and, and I, I think one of the things is that, you know, we've, we you and I have been doing this, being part of the, of the media, whether it's through writing or through, through, you know, doing things on the web or doing things through, through radio and, and, I think it's kind of it's 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 um, it's been done, and so I, I'm looking to kind of um, um, take this amazing thing that we've got going, this amazing spirit of Spooky South Coast, and take it in some new directions. So some of these shows might be ten minute shows, some of these shows might be uh, you know two hour discussions that kind of mimic Spooky South Coast. But you know I think there's a lot of things that we're not doing right now um, as a paranormal community, um, and I think there's a lot of people that want to have have this kind of content. And they want to be able to just go in and be like, all right, I just want to listen to something for a half hour. It doesn't have to have a guest. It's just something to spark my brain. And, uh, and I'm hoping to bring that to Spooky Alternative. Sounds like a great plan. I'm all for it. Good. Well, I hope so because uh, you're running it. So, Well, you're running it. Yeah. <laughs> Don't make extra work for me, Balzana. <laughs> Well, you know, keep this. I guess spooky alternative would be the uh, would be the, um, the 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 tendership behind uh, behind the the, the cruiser that is spooky South Coast. It's it's your it's your opportunity to realize just how much work I actually have to do. <laughs> I think it took me two hours just to design the 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 the, um, the iTunes picture. So I mean, I'm imagining some, how much. Someday we just have to get Moniz to realize that you know, for everybody else, it's actually work. You know, not everybody else cruises in at 10.02 and leaves at 12.05. But you know what? And I, and I think one of the things that um, that limits Spooky South Coast, is, and we've had this discussion on, on both the shows, is that, you know, there's a, a certain integrity that Spooky South Coast has because it is a terrestrial radio station. Um, and there's something about that. Um, but there's also something limited about that, too. So so it's not like you can go in there and, and at 10 o'clock on a scheduled time on, on – you know, and, and we have a sizable local audience in that area. Go there and and kind of you know um, just tell a ghost story because you know you you, you might be fearful of how the local audience is going to respond and how the people are going to respond. Um, but if you offer kind of that stuff in little segments and and these kind of experimental things, you know you can have the the the, the main ship um, cutting its path. You know the way that Spooky South Coast does so well, and then all these kind of other little things. Like, huh, this is kind of interesting. It'll be like a little bit of a salad bar. So, um, but the good thing is, is that that work that you're talking about is actually kind of fun. Um, so it's def- and it's definitely revigorating for anyone who who. I mean, I am burnt out. I am burnt out on the paranormal world, and this stuff that I'm doing now is just really kind of rejuvenating me. Well, I'm glad for that because uh, we were going to be working the hell out of you next week because uh, <laughs> next week's going to be our annual Bridgewater Triangle show. And uh, we are still looking for groups to get on board. Uh, you can email us, SpookyCrew, at SpookySouthCoast.com. But uh, there's there's still some places available. Uh, we're working on some things, uh, and hopefully we're going to have a, a surprise or two uh, coming up. But we do have uh, groups that are getting involved, but there's still room for you. And I, I don't know what the uh, weather is going to be like here because we're taping this uh, over a week out from that episode, but uh, hopefully it plays along. And anyone who's picking this up, I know there's a, there will be a week kind of running into it, but uh, one of the things that we were talking about doing is 
uh, for people to short, just uh, to, to, sorry, to film a short video of them and the redhead hitchhiker. So uh, one of the things we're, we're hoping to kind of have up there is kind of this whole Bridgewater Triangle package is different groups, and it could be groups or it could just be people who are listeners. Um, go out to the area where the redhead hitchhiker is supposed to be, where you think it might be most active, and and film for us you trying to get in touch with the redhead hitchhiker. Whether you're you're out there with a Ouija board, hopefully not in the dark in the middle of the road. Uh, whether you're, um, you're you're doing the classic, you know, stopping at the at the town line and shutting your lights off and honking your horn. Uh, whether you're just cruising up and down, kind of doing it. We would love to have your video. Try to make it short. Don't make it too long. Like you know you. Can, Feel free to cut it down as you're segmenting it, um, and and submit that to us. You can submit that directly to the website via, you know, or you can put it up on YouTube. and We can clip it from you, but um, because we we want to kind of show the the world that this is kind of this really cool little legend slash haunting that we have, and uh, and the coolest part about it is that people approach it from a completely different way. Not only do they approach it from a different mindset, they approach it from a different place of how to how to get that activity stirred up. Alright, well uh, that about does it for this week's episode of Spooky South Coast. Again, we'll be back next week when uh, we have our annual Bridgewater Triangle show and then we've got all kinds of cool stuff planned coming up in November. So stay tuned to SpookySouthCoast.com. That's the place where you can find out all the information about the show. You can also download previous episodes and check out the Spooky TV archives and check out the shows during the week. Of course, right now we have Spirit Connections with Tiffany Rice on Tuesdays at 7 and Spooky Crossroads Wednesdays at 9. But as Chris said, plenty more coming down the pike. So stay tuned to SpookySouthCoast.com for all that. Uh, so, I guess, well, we'll sign off. It seems weird signing off here uh, as we're pre-recording without having to look at the clock and worry uh, about the <laughs> network ID firing off. But uh, <laughs> I'm sure for those listening on the radio station, it's going to happen. So, uh, or worrying about Moniz firing off. That's true, too. He always seems to want to fire off right around uh, the time that we have to take a break for the news. So, uh, until next week, for Chris Balzano, for Matt Moniz, for Matt Costa, I'm Tim Weisberg, and we want you all to stay spooktacular. <laughs>